Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. My name is Michael Anthony Ingram, and welcome to the program. program. Author Catherine Halligan made the following statement. Move aside history. It's time for her story. Her story is history written from a woman's point of view. Tonight, we celebrate this perspective through poetry. The readers will be acclaimed poets, Sophia Nas, Jackie Oldham, Marianne Silk, and Lynn Spiegelmeyer Biddy. These poets will add their voices to the chorus of women who exercise agency in their own lives. So without further ado, I give you Jackie Oldham. Good evening. Good to be with you. Uh, My first poem is very much into the theme of her story, and it is called History Swallows Her Story. History is not infallible. His story tells only what he chooses to remember. Her story is woven into his threads until we pick the threads apart. It has only been 100 years since women won the right to vote, a right entwined with that of her polar opposites, the black man and the black woman, both subjugated to the white man. The history books filled with tales of the race to equality for the white woman, the black man, the black woman, often left me cold. Abolitionist suffragists worked to free black men, but forgot the black woman. And what about the ordinary souls whose tales were never told? In 1920, my grandma was but eight years old and great-grandma 28. I never heard great-grandma speak of politics, but grandma was a Republican, proud to be in the party of Lincoln. Both grandma and great-grandma were homemakers who only took in other people's wash to supplement their husband's earnings for their mortgages to pay off. Between these two and their husbands, they spent most of their time raising a combined 12 children and dozens of grand, great, and great-great-grandchildren in Old West Baltimore. Yet neither I nor any of my black queens were assured the right to vote until the Civil Rights Act of 1965. It was only 50 years ago the year in which I came of age, that women, black and white, won equal rights with men. The first woman admitted to Yale University began in 1969. The following year, I entered Goucher College, an all-woman school and sister school of Johns Hopkins University, which had just become co-ed. We Goucher girls were bust to Hopkins for mixers to socialize. Goucher remained all female until 1986. 
It wasn't until 1974 that a woman could get a credit card in her own name. Before then, my mother's credit was tied to my father's. Even after, her household bills, utilities, insurance, and credit cards removed in her husband's name and proved difficult to change. In 1975, another young woman and I began our first full-time jobs together. When my new coworker learned she was expecting, it was made clear that her job might not be waiting for her when or if she returned after her baby's birth. Within two years, I'd bought my first car and moved to my first apartment, but I still needed Dad's assistance to seal the deal. Now, here we are in 2020, and our rights have surely grown. Women astronauts have flown in space and pilots in the skies. In government and politics, we've made huge strides, except in the Oval Office, where we have yet to rise. And equal pay for equal work is still a dream for most. So as we celebrate women's history and all the rights we fought for, the most important right remains to get out there and vote. My second poem is entitled Bent But Not Broken. It was inspired by a prompt from a poetry group that I'm a member of. Bent but not broken. When the wide mantle of her living room fireplace rested a row of funny, loving, and even musical cards to celebrate her 83rd birthday. When her sunny dining room table sat three stunning vases filled with carnations and roses, purple and pink, roses red, and lilies white to honor her. A beacon of light, a giver of love, a woman of grit and grace to all who know her. She was the third of three siblings, girl, boy, girl, born in the 1930s with a surprise fourth sibling, another girl, born in 1948 to a pair of working-class parents with middle-class dreams. She and her older brother grabbed the mantle of those dreams, sailing through the segregated schools of Baltimore, through college, and into married life with partners of their ilk. Her brother, a post-college military man, introduced her to her future husband, with whom he'd attended officer training school. She, a history major, began a career as a social worker, spreading compassion and knowledge to all she encountered, black or white, clients and coworkers alike, in a voice always calm, always measured, always strong. When the children came along, she and, she and her husband taught them well in a tasteful and loving suburban home. And when the children took flight, she returned to school, earning a master's and resuming her career. Her children's successes and failures her own and her husband's illnesses, she bore without pity.
They were simply side roads on their journey through life. A life filled with family trips across the country. And in the golden years, traveling the globe with her perfect mate. Until he died, buried with honors in Arlington Cemetery. This loss, too, she bore without pity, but with an ocean of tears, most of them shed in private. Months later, her daughter survived a serious crash on a country road, only to be diagnosed with renal cancer. Her son, once lost to addiction, had recovered in time to serve proudly as man of the family. Now she sat at the dining table, surrounded by her surviving family who love her most, her youngest sister, her daughter and son, her oldest niece, her youngest nephew. She beamed smiling, head curiously bent forward toward her chest by wry neck, torticollis of recent onset, and gave thanks in a voice no longer strong and sure, but the quavering voice of an elderly lady. My last poem is titled Life After Death, Love Never Dies, and it is in tribute to my mother who passed away in 2018. It has been six months to the day since my mother, Dorothy Ann, passed away. I still mourn her passing deeply, yet every single day she's left miracles for me to behold in her memory. The flowering plant given to me by a friend a day after her passing still blooms, though it sits on my drafty kitchen window ledge. All summer long and even well into fall, my roses flowered, proud and tall, though scraggly compared to mom's lush bushes, which we bought and planted together two years ago. And two small white butterflies named Ma for Madam and Pa Butterfly appeared daily all summer long, both at mom's house and mine, sometimes actually flying close to me. Gradually, I became aware of mom's greatest gift to me, the freedom to be. Days and weeks of unbearable empty sadness gave way to opportunities unimagined, newfound friendships, and renewed, deepening old ones. My voice, once tentative, began to take on an urgent confidence, born of all the wisdom Mom bestowed on me. My poems, once written for myself alone, I read aloud in public. The stories of my life, impossible without Mom's presence, began to be heard. And the love she poured into me now flows through and out of me toward others. I greet my neighbors with a smile and hugs, and we talk a while. I go out with friends and family for parties, movies, and civic engagement, and I raise my voice, laugh, argue, and sometimes even lead. All thanks to you, Dorothy Ann. Thank you for giving me permission 
to fly. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. I'd like to bring Thank in you. your colleague at this time for comments. Well, comments from this is yes. this is Lynn. Yeah, this is Lynn Vitti. Mm-hmm. Um, Jackie, I I mm-hmm. love the spirit of your work, and I think that it's almost like a memoir in poetry, and it's um, mm-hmm. it's different views of different stages of your life, but you looking mm-hmm. back at other family members. So I, mm-hmm. I, I just think it's, um, it, I felt like, I feel like I get drawn into that world. And, and even though I never met your mother, I feel like I get to know her through your work. Mm-hmm. And I've read other of your poems that, that mm-hmm. feature Dorothy as well. And I think that yeah. um, you should, you should just, Put all of those poems together because they're a book. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you. I agree. I agree. I I like the part about the butterflies. That uh-huh. was amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> well, let me ask this question. So, if you had to yes. to distill the word her story, what would you say? What does that mean to you? Uh, it, it 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 actually does not mean to me what it does to my uh, white women colleagues. Um, To me, her story was something that I learned from my black family, obviously. But um, I come from a family where the women just did what they had to do to live. And that often included working, um, whether it was at home washing somebody's laundry or uh, being a dental assistant or whatever. And so many of the women in my family did work long before it became the cry of the liberation age of the 1960s and 70s. And wow. so I really was kind of um, taken aback by this you know, we've got to get free from our kitchens and get out there because the women I come from just did that as a matter of course. Um, it the, the other thing that, that um, I guess kind of surprised me um, as I was researching for that first poem, um, basically what I did was take from an article I had read all the things that women couldn't do until a particular year. And I mm. related it back to the women from my family. Wow, very nice. Very nice. Thank what you. Yes. Marianne, that was that was I think you know, an extremely interesting and illuminating part of the poem. You know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what what women hadn't been able to do mm-hmm. in recent in history. Uh-huh. Yes, I was amazed, I, you know, at how recent a lot of the things we can now, if not take for granted, at least accept as, you know, normal, they're not that that long ago. Um, and to see so much that has happened in our lifetimes is just incredible. Very nice. What does being a poet mean to you? 
being a poet to me is probably the best way to to tell the stories of my life in a way that can engage people and put my life in a larger perspective. Um, All of my writing, even my essay writing, um, goes to that point that by looking at things through my lens, I hope to give a picture of the larger human condition, the things that we can all relate to. Wow. Very nice. I want to thank you again, Jackie, for sharing your work. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I'd like to turn the program over now to Marianne Silk. Hi. Hi, Michael. Hello. Hi. Um, The first, Jackie is a hard person to follow, and I'm going to take the the poems in a different direction. Um, At first, instead of uh, writing about my family, although I I will have a poem that I mentioned my mother in, uh, I'd like to mention... um, a woman, a woman I knew when I was working in New York, and I found out recently. I I haven't really kept touch with you know we're Facebook friends, but that's it. It turns out she went back to school to become a nurse at fifty whatever, and um, you know this is the poem that came of it. You know, and and actually she's in New York, and at that time when I wrote the poem, New York was this was the uh, hot spot. Um, in which the singer becomes a nurse. White coat thrown over a jade polyester dress. The singer graduates from nursing school. She stands with a friend, a woman from the Gambia, the classmate she sang hymns with at a blind man's bedside. The singer's smile is fixed the way it was when we worked together, when we sat at desks answered phones, pounded out memos on the last typewriters. When we blow-dried our pixie cuts, ironed our blouses, dabbed clear polish on the runs in our stockings, I wonder if she knew what she was getting into, working at the center of this pandemic, in the Bronx, where suiting up means reusing masks and gowns, wearing plastic shields and garbage bags, laundering latex gloves. Elsewhere in the city, doctors in private practice die from the virus. Workers who hand out the masks, who hand out the trays, die from the virus. Maybe this is the wonder. The singer gets up before dawn and comes home in the dark, climbing four flights of stairs as if she were still Sister Blanche, the nobleman's daughter, who ascends to the scaffold, bareheaded, wearing white, in the last scene of the dialogue of the Carmelites. This time, the singer finds her way to her upright piano to sing again. Okay. And um, I think maybe, yeah, maybe I'll read another um, coronavirus poem. I'm going to read, I think think maybe... uh, if I have time, um, four poems. At this. Yes. Um, this poem is 
at the Museum of Dictionaries Restored. It's about um, one of the people we lost to the coronavirus. That uh, this is actually this is actually part, you know prep work that I did for a workshop on uh, the pandemic. At the Museum of Dictionaries for Madeline Kripke, 1943 to 2020. Letters clump and crackle, come apart, and dance in humid afternoon air. Vowels, consonants, accents, umlauts, bind together, keep out yellowing sun. The flute from the hidden radio threads the path from room to room. The small woman with a flashlight follows, pauses at each curious book. Words dazzle and twirl on each page, some as large as the kitchen counter, others as small as a doll's saucer, perched on the guide's pink fingernails. One red evening, the guide runs out of time. While clouds outside heap up like dust, letters catch in her throat. Now there are no words in any language for woman or book or breath. Next poem I'd like to do is, I think, more personal. And this is Flying into Warsaw in Another Life. Flying into Warsaw in Another Life. In this life, the eastbound tr airplane simply hangs above the toy landscape. Cotton ball, cotton ball clouds, timely, tiny nameless trees, the ocean a smooth, dark sheet without trash or fish or shipwrecks. Tomorrow morning I land in Poland, my grandfather's country, country of trees with yellowed leaves and peeling bark of cobblestones coated with cigarette smoke, of lumbering oxen and steam trains, of people who look like me but swish and swallow vinegary consonants that burn going down an American's throat. In this life, I don't know, that Grampy never lived in Poland. In his own village near Vilnius, his words, a foreign language swirled like wood smoke in morning air. And the last poem, it's a food poem. Women have issues with food, especially this woman. Um, let's see. Yeah, food is love. No. Um, yeah, I think that's that's the that's the one I'll do. Food is love. Food is love. This afternoon, you offer me the rest of the mochi. You compel, no, you encourage, no, you decline to take the last three deflated mock eggs runny with tangy mango and sweet ice cream. I remember the last time I brought you food, chocolate in the shape of an evil eye that could not ward off my racing heart or your migraines. Chocolate tastes like ashes to us now. I recall the last time I cooked for you. Salmon, top-heavy with orange slices and sloshed with mo moyo criollo. 
from the Puerto Rican grocery store that's been closed for 10 years. Angel hair pasta with walnuts, olives, flecks of red pepper, cinnamon, and chocolate gelato for dessert. In some other kitchen, I chanted, food is love, food is love, food is love. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mary Ann. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. Marianne, what does her story mean to you? It means, what does her story mean to you? It means yes. to me women, um, history from a woman's perspective. Instead of necessi- you know, talking about countries going to war with each other or you know, elections, um, you know, probably more you know, like what Jackie was saying, you know, when women could do certain things. Also, you know, how history affects women and, the, you know, their, their families. Comments from your colleagues, from your fellow poets, about what you've heard from Marianne. Well, this is Lynn. I, um, I was particularly interested in the poem about the singer who became a nurse and then ends up working in the Bronx um, when New York was was really having what Governor Cuomo kept referring to as the apex of cases. And I I just, um, it's interesting because you see pictures of nurses and doctors and EMTs and, and, you know, we know that everybody claps for them at the same time at night and makes noise in New York and thanks them. But you don't always think of what their lives were like before they became um medical professionals um and i thought that was and and the image of the 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 uh turquoise or green polyester dress with the white coat (laughs) over it was just jarring and wonderful i loved it (laughs) thank you (laughs) i agree (laughs) this is jackie And and I agree. Uh, the other thing that I that I took from that poem was uh, just the mere fact that a singer who becomes a nurse and and is actually a survivor, whereas some of her colleagues are not, um, singing mm. certainly does strengthen your lungs and you know everything else. And so just that that kind of juxtaposition of 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 using her voice and then going to care for others um stood out for me. Um your other poems um were also wonderful. Um I especially liked the poem about uh the trip to Poland. Um lines like the vinegary consonants and the wood smoke in morning air. Um just the the imagery of um, the places that you were flying over it was just um, exquisite to me, and of course everyone <laughs> loves food, <laughs> and I I really enjoyed that. Just thinking about you know how food food has taken a new meaning for me. I'm doing more cooking than I ever did, <laughs> but I, it sounds like you're doing less, you know, and enjoying it less. So. I thought the poems were wonderful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Jackie. All right. Well, let me ask this last question of you. What does being a poet mean to you? What does it What does it mean to be a poet? 
being a poet means to be a, a maker, somebody who creates word pictures. Although, you know, I, I like I like writing um, not quite persona poems, but poems poems with characters in them. And I think sometimes I'm also writing poems to figure things out. I guess you know I'm, I'm figuring out what I think about uh, the pandemic. And there, was, you know, recently I don't I I didn't bring any of these poems with me. There were, there were a couple poems that basically I was writing I was writing them to figure out what I thought about a situation. Mm-hmm. 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 All right. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you for sharing your work, and hopefully you'll have others to share. Uh, but thank you very very much. Great. All right. I'd like okay. to turn the program I'm over go now. Off. Okay. All right. All right. I'd like to turn the program over now to <laughs> Sophia Nas. Thank you, Michael. Uh, wonderful. Yes. And it was wonderful to hear all uh, such beautiful poetry with such rich imagery. Um, I'm sorry, I was desperately trying to get through and I was just getting a busy signal. So I wasn't able to comment, but I'd like to say just wonderful. It's been a pleasure being uh, part of this program and listening to all of you. So I just wanted to put that there. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, hello, hello. I am <laughs> thrilled to be part of this uh, program, to be part of her story. And I thought I'd begin with a very personal poem because I think that so much of her story is not written in um, books and in canon, but on women's bodies. So I'm going to begin with a poem called Ode to a Scar. Ode to a Scar. Lonely signpost, most days I turn away from you, avert my gaze. Who wants to dwell on unloveliness, dever? Yet there is an undertow in the welting, the warp and weft that knits, written on the body, its poundage, betrayed calligraphy of missive missile, sacred scar. I want it to interpret you like a dream, leisurely, like one would unwind a gauze-wrapped heirloom, interrupted flesh. But you became a cheeky meteor, shooting scar, firing fusillades of synapses. Now, geography, history, and memory burn within your crossbones scar on the surface you recede to a whisper it is only in the unseen caverns of my cheek that you howl like a wolf at the many moons of my teeth So my next poem is called Pecking Order. Your ears ripened early in the glare of the clucking, 
reminded constantly that merely being alive was no less than a miracle because 1400 years ago you would have been buried alive. And how is that different from this you wanted to blurt but held your tongue bitten and hidden like everything else? It is always and only them, because they rule the roost. Your father and brother and gangly male cousins and their Adam-appled friends allowed to express their hungers. For them, the choice cuts the breasts and legs, and for you, the throttled neck so crisply twisted and snapped at the butchers. One time, you won a wishbone, along with it, a pitying look. Siblings belonged to other countries. You had an immediate overlord. Nonetheless, you slept with the bone like an incomplete heart, an interrupted sentence under your tear-damp pillow. What was the talisman meant to do? The next morning, the sheets were stained with blood. You were 11 years old. The trees are forbidden, as is the cricket match on the street, as is running in the lawn, because who will be watching? There is always someone watching. The world is made of eyes. You are made of cotton and paws. Day is made of full stops. Nights off the record. My next poem is called Mother Tongue. Take off your shoes outside this shrine where ghosts of the mother tongue reside alongside lamps of extinguished geographies? Should I gauze this Dhaka muslin today, say, mull, mull, glaze a homonym hymn in Kabir's cadence over an earthen plot of amputated thumbs? From pore to pore the cleft Mandible's tomb, sanctum sanctorum, womb of wombs, the mother tongues ferment. Matroshka dolls, each within another, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, till the last part, God-embedded seed syllable wails. Ma, mother of memory, Heal me, unmake my prosaic days of bricks, troll boots, malware, endless fishes. Click by click, the dick pics box me in, anarchically, sentenced to snark alley by that blind emperor autocorrect. The walls, the walls are closing in, transfixed on a selfie stick. Mother of memory, ma, reveal me, 
a heaving loom, the greater grid buried in these lines, electrify a thousand-fold suns in the mouths of every silence. This next poem is called Shahrazad, and it was written when I was 20. Shahrazad. At 20, tiring of made-up stories that climbed the endless loop of sleep and waking, I dreamed of her, archaic, yet urbane, a name that could be construed either way. Sheher Azad, she who set the city free. Like so many birds uncaged, daughters of daughters streaming in spinnerets of every ilk. Or was she, Sheherzad, a city-bound heart's hammered words, trying to pry open the padlocked arms of sky? Well, I tell you now, I have swallowed both meanings that minaret sword, that fruited sun, an inverted dome, a weeping onion, shedding all my skins, one by silent one. I have let down my ladders, run the tightrope, clung to myself at each rung, and now I know precisely the quality of absence. The street shall wash its hands of me as if morning was an hour made of sand and time will put memory to sleep like a rabbit dog. Um, I don't know uh, how much time I have. How much time do I have, Michael? Yes, uh, continue, continue, please. Okay. This next poem is called Hands because uh, I think in the time of the coronavirus, we're all obsessed with washing our hands. Hands. If your hands could smell, you'd be an octopus. Every surface sent a million stories. The stealthy stickiness of slugs would seep. Epic in the drama of the underbrush. Melting stalagmites show and tell in your digits earth as memnozony. If your hands could smell, the suck of subway cars would stop you dead in your tracks to decode teeming conduits lighting up nosegays on your fingers. Newborn bouquets, archaic utter. Each night, etymology of odor would allure you, greedy as Prometheus, but unable to steal the summer of a firefly, the distant musk of a star. If your hands could smell, You'd speak in canine, each pole and passing bush, whisper, each sniff, you'd get the snitch of neighborhood carousing in high fidelity, a 
until weary of invisible graffiti scroll of metropolis unfolding in endless olfactory braille. You'd head for the woods, hoping trees were not such talkers, or at least would shoot the breeze between sentences. How long did you walk? It's hard to tell, but when you fell, palms down, cupped hollow as a flute upon the ground, you understood how the void makes music possible. And history had it wrong. It was not earth who bore witness. It was your hands all along. This next poem, if I have time for another poem. Yes, yes you do. Uh, this next poem is actually segueing in from hands to a, a coronavirus poem. This is called Count. The alphabet soldiers many times its weight. No way to outfox whole ant black on back, up against the wall, scroll on despite bites, drip-feeding toll. Vault, the bereft keep count. Multiplication divides, red flags blue and white falling down. Pirates bear jagged crowns. Say, can you see this means? To dawn pinnacle, cough success, go viral. Um, there's another poem that I want to read, um, which, of course, is um, something I've read before, but I think it bears repeating. Um, I was written this in 2016 um, when we were... Um, in a different election year, and it's called The United States of Amnesia. The United States of Amnesia. Welcome to the United States of Amnesia, where the average attention span is an albatross around the neck of history, drowning in largesse of half-calf mocha frappuccino, at every other corner, nine-tenths of teeth submerge in this melting pot super bowl of guillotined Halloween cropped and photoshopped to the death and the bell crows a clockwork orange. Clone and minions man the phone, ringing off the hook like an armless pirate with his peddling finger on the Twitter out to abduct you. Only lonely immigrant child America, this illegal erection election year, unlike any other in living Eurasia. Welcome to the dystopian states of amnesia, to the gloom of the homeless underpasses, to the panhandling flutes drowned out in the tropics of the nocturnal subterranean washed up on your shores like a bottle with a pent-up ocean in my bladder, 
Memory is the only currency I hold. The infected blankets up to the light. I know the smell of genocide. I have watched women shamed as witches. Watched them fall like dominoes on a Salem moon. I have met Sally Hennings and the strange fruit of your history, America. I have fallen in your uncivil war of a thousand and one episodes. This beast you thought you tamed, he prowls the profiled knight wearing a police uniform. Beneath your bipolar indifference, a glacial racial ice age is dying. Unseen below deck, in red bullet points, in blue moans, while a white, white sea sails on. Um, how much time do you have, Michael? Okay. Do you have time for one more? You got one more? I have time for one more. Okay. Yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> then we can come back. Then we can come back and do more. All right. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I am going to read uh, a different poem called um, The Last Beekeeper. Now, where did it go? Um, Yeah. The Last Beekeeper. Bees are living in my eyes. They feed on my tears all day and through cold black night. I can hear them buzzing as they mill my dreams to honey, hum incessantly in the rag reserved for species on the brink of becoming extinct. I blink the bleak milk back, lacrimose to the core at the thought of being this ocular cave hole, last recourse of Apis mellifera as a dying planet, toxic from sweltering belly to melting pores, runs the last lap in its course. Thank you. Thank you. Let me ask you a question. What does her story mean to you? I think her story means um, disassembling a lot of um, the the, uh, stereotypes and um, interrupting the hierarchy that we've received, you know, Mm -hmm. that uh, we've, we've all, you know, women painters, women artists, women writers, they're all um, subject to so much erasure. And um, it's very personal for me, actually, because I recently, uh, uh, my mother's, I wrote my mother's biography, and she had a horrendous first marriage, and uh, subsequently, you know, all traces of her uh, first marriage were erased from the 
family history and I knew mm. I had to write it and it's it's been a very personal journey for me to write my mother's biography and uh, I actually um part my my author name it's my middle name and it was given to me by my mother whose name was Shahnaz and she broke a piece of her own name and g- gave it to me as my middle name and mm-hmm. from then on uh for after her death i realized that i wanted to use this as my author name and mm-hmm. i've uh given up using both my husband's name or my father's name and i think these are small symbolic but very important steps that women can do to reclaim their space we need to take up space her story means taking up space because we have just been pushed aside too long all right all right i'd like to bring in your fellow colleagues for their comments wow this is lynn i i there was just so much rich language in your work and you read so beautifully um, I, th- most of the poems, I wish I could hear them again because the images were just so striking. And as soon as I mm-hmm. kind of got my head around one, another one came along, and I thought, "Oh, yeah. I need to look at, I need to hear this again." Um, mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I love the one where you said, the, 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 "I don't remember the line exactly." The the world is is full of eyes. I mean, I, it was just, it, it was yeah. so riveting. So thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed your work too. It your 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 images are also beautiful, very, very dense and, and gorgeous. Thank you so much. Other comments? This, yes, this is Jackie. Um, I am absolutely blown away by your imagery. Um, your work is so visceral and physical um, in in its descriptions of being human, um, that's the only way I can Thank put you. it. It's, it's just phenomenal. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, I, and it means a lot to me. And your, uh, your mentioning of Scheherazade and the two meanings of it, I was, that took me away, too. I had no idea. Um, I, I think that your perspective as... Um, as not American is 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 uh, is honestly um, richer and adds so much to the American story. Honestly, um, thank you. All of well, your poems spoke to me in that thank way. You. Yes, yes, yes. What does being a poet mean to you, Sophia? I think. It, it's uh, definitely uh, a deep engagement with language, with the possibilities that are always present in language, um, paying attention, trying to make, uh, I always try to write poetry that uh, is doing uh, the work that it's more than just saying it, it's actually making you feel on mm-hmm. um, on a gut level, on a visceral level, what I'm talking about. And, mm-hmm. you know, it. I, I'm seriously 
committed to the craft and you know just working away at it it's like chiseling <laughs> chiseling away at this thing we call language which is mm-hmm. which is such a fascinating thing you know i'm that it's an adventure. Every day is an adventure uh, when yes, you put it. It, it, is, mm-hmm. it is an enriching pursuit. <laughs> Sometimes oh, yeah. elusive, oftentimes elusive, <laughs> and I'm sure the others yeah. would agree. Yeah, right, right. All right. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you very, very much. All right. I'd like to turn the program over now to Lynn Spiegelmeyer Vitti. Thanks, Michael. Um, yes. I'm going to read a, a Uh, several poems, actually, that are sort of works in progress. Some of them I have labored over and revised and revised. A few of them have been published, but they're all pandemic-era poems, so fasten your seatbelts. The first one is called Making Sandwiches During the Pandemic. We rise earlier than usual, forgot coffee in bed, reading what news we can absorb, mulling over what time we'll venture outside today to walk, to fuss over the early spring garden, treading carefully so as not to disturb tender shoots of aster, sedum, bearded iris, waiting for a warm stretch of days that will call forth the display of summer. We make sandwiches, a pile of them, debate whether to cut them or leave them whole, pack them in the last of our Ziploc bags, You don protective gear, disposable gloves, and a second pair, old black nylon ones you wear for rainy days when we walk. By now, you've stopped by the church to pick up 50 sandwiches awaiting you in the narthex, where we used to gather Sundays after the service for coffee and cookies and chat. The space where we gathered will be dark this rainy morning and empty. I imagine you pick up the bags of sandwiches carefully, depositing them in the trunk of your car. By now, you're making your way on the turnpike towards Emmanuel Church to deliver this humble meal to the souls who feed those who live on the streets, who bravely sleep on the grates near the library, who will meet the virus on the road. We can only make sandwiches. The next poem. Seem to be a lot of food poems here, but here we go. In praise of pasta a la norma. Infused with minced anchovies and eggplant, married to tomatoes and good olive oil, the rust-colored sauce reminds us of Sicily. Our walks up the mountains and hills from Enna to Cefalu, on ancient drove roads in the heat, through villages where only the old have stayed, where the locals offered to sell us empty houses for a pittance if we'd only pay the back taxes and fix the place up. Twice, our hostess says, almost as an apology, it's a vegetarian meal tonight. No need. The short tubes of pasta enrobed in sarsa, ricotta salting the dish beyond what we normally permit. Smell of earth, and sun, fresh baked crusty bread, a salad, and pasta a la norma. Tonight, we soften the lines of our self-imposed quarantine. We're transported back to Catania when we emerge from the airport terminal into the warm night, looking to fill our bellies, our souls, with food for a king composed like an aria, 
from stuff of the ancient Sicilian earth. I have to say that was the last time my spouse and I had dinner with other people in their homes. So that was March something, March 8th. Um, Walking at Hale Reservation. I should preface this by saying that I live in New England, and that pretty much tells you what you need to know. The road rises before us, a winding asphalt path through woods, trailheads behind stone walls, traces of colonial farmhouses and work roads where ox carts drag granite from Boston and beyond. Did the ghosts of those who worked this land suffer smallpox, think of themselves as sinners in the hands of an angry God, believe they were not among the elect? Or were they stoic, philosophical? Families with their dogs, pairs of adults, runners walk ahead or pass us going the opposite way. In the strong sunlight, we shed our gloves, tie our puffy jackets around our waists, look for messages of spring, trees budding, a spot of new green emerging from leaf beds. These signs are scant. The season holds back, but we crave any hint to reassure us something better is on the way. After that first week of shutting ourselves up in the house, we already miss what we used to complain about jobs grudgingly performed, or obligations we had to meet. We turn the last corner, arrive at the parking lot, climb into the car, sanitize our hands, a secular ritual as close to sacred as we have in these strange days. Got a couple sonnets here. Let's see, I get them in order. Sonnets in quarantine, number one. How many stamps are required for an oversized letter? How many stones must I dislodge from the ground before I have enough for a border wall? Not to keep others out, but to define limits of this long-neglected garden, a way to shape and tame nature for an hour, forget the crown-shaped virus moving from across the world to this spot, looking for a home, just like these Siberian irises, the evening primrose, the wood anemone, all the stuff that goes where it desires won't bend to my direction. Even as I arm myself with industrial vinegar, spray the stubborn growth, then indoors, wash my hands, send the virus down the drain. Mm. Sonnet in quarantine number two. We want to think everything is right, will evolve that our lives will return to the old ones we led, though we know that's a pipe dream. We watch the spring rains and sun raise up the daylilies. The nasturtium seeds we lodged in the new garden sprout. The yard is every shade of green. Leaves, profuse pollen from oaks and pine trees fills our noses. We complain, laughing as we always have, sneezing, finding the yellow dust on our clothes, windowsills. We try for normalcy, dinner at the same time, mail call. But we can't shake the knowledge in our hearts that something has gone terribly wrong. We are rudderless, leaderless, at the helm a blowhard who smiles and smiles and is a villain. 
I was glad Sophia had a little political thing in her poems. Made me feel a little bit more relaxed about that one. Sure. Um, this one is called Strawberry Fields Forever. Five middle-aged women tucked tight in a booth on the Upper West Side at the Greek diner. We ordered the breakfast specials and coffee, refills on coffee. Our bodies were close. We devoured popovers from the common plate, tasted one another's food in a communion of sisterhood, threw twenties on the table, over-tipped because we'd all waited tables in our youth. Now we zoom about what we most miss. Being touched, says one. Kissing my grandson, says another. AA meetings in a church basement, black coffee, slipping out for smokes or air at the five-minute break. We ask, will we ever dine again, sitting close, touch each other gently on wrist or forearm to make a point? Will we ever link arms again as we walk down Broadway, freed from our screens and layers of confinement? Will we someday sit maskless again, so near the stage we can see the actors spit. Got a couple more, Michael. Do I have time? Yes, please. Please, yes. I'm going to read um, one pre-COVID poem, and then I'm going to read part of an old poem that's quite a long poem, and I wouldn't inflict it on on you at this point because it's a four-page poem, but I'll just read a section of it near the end. This poem is not that one. It's called Lenten Moonrise. So here it is. This was written in very early February of this year. Like the infant who has confused night and day, I've swapped night for day. Like the baby napping hours in a sunny bassinet, ready to kick and bat at crib toys all night, I prowl around the house, coughing so hard I strain the muscles in my neck. My spouse self-exiled to a single futon two sets of stairs away in the lower level, has stuffed his ears with plugs so sturdy they protect against clanging guitars, amplified a hundredfold through speakers, so they insulate him against the racking cough of a wife with flu, not the novel coronavirus, and perhaps not even a real flu, just a flu-like illness, an imposter, bringing chills, fever, malaise. Sleep, rest under an automatic blanket set to high, is the only cure And tea, water, juice, broth, all of which tastes finest in the wee hours. It's an unfamiliar landscape devoid of house lights, I look out the kitchen windows to the home whose backyard abuts ours. The moon is just past full, barely waning. I look for animals in the yard, the ones who do their work at night, deer who gnaw on the ewes, stripping them of needles, or who browse the trunks of firs with their antlers, or the hawk that we sometimes see in summer and fall. Mornings when the garden is profuse with green and purple blooms, not like now when all is sere, brown to bleached out stalks of nearly white oak leaves that stack themselves against the side of a low deck or between large stepping stones to the lawn. Pale green brown blades like old carpet 
ready to be rolled up for the trash. On this Valentine's Day of flu, I miss the moonrise, but well after midnight I watch it in the yard. I tiptoe so as not to awaken our cat who roams the basement all night looking out the window over the washing machine or watching for intruders, centipedes, stink bugs, the occasional mouse to dispatch. I click on the electric kettle, brew another cup of tea, dose it with honey, squeeze a lemon wedge in, carry the mug back to bed. I read till sleep returns. Tomorrow I'll collect collect the tissues I've flung to the floor all night and the cough drop wrappers. The moon shines silver through the bedroom window. I fight the urge to switch on television. I embrace the boredom, make my peace with it, soothed by the moon's beams falling across the quilt. Tomorrow the moon will set while I dream stories I will only half remember and the moon hiding where it hides will emerge new, a spare and ascetic Lenten mood, moon. Okay, I go. I'm going to read part of a long poem called The Walk to Chefalu, which is the story of a walk from the town of Anna, which is in central Sicily, um, to the coast. And it was quite a long trek, uh, about 15 miles a day. And so this is the very last day. It was quite hot. And I will pick this up with... Um, Okay. We're walking towards the the town of Cefalu, which is right on the coast um, on the Tyrrhenian Sea. The road disappeared. We walked a path overgrown, wild, the path so narrow we trampled the flowers. Tall grass is ambitious to take over the narrow path entirely. My legs complain. I thought, how nice to unlace and discard my boots, pull off my socks, put my feet in the Tyrrhenian Sea. That was hours away. We walked on, reached the point where we could see Chefalu, red roofs and cream-colored houses, thin ribbons of streets leading down to a white beach, and the sea, Mediterranean blue, like the crayon in the Crayola box. We were sweating now. It was after four. The heat still rose from those hills of wildflowers and tall grasses. My left instep tweaked. I walked on, trying to keep up, ahead, single file. I went into a a sort of trance state, down to be sure I was walking where I should be, but no longer thought about my feet, the heat, the sweat, moving from forehead to chin. We descended the grassy hill and reached pavement. Another 45 minutes, our leader said, though Chefalu and the beach were so far, I hardly believed him. We were on a street of beach houses, backyards, fences, signs, terreno in vendita. Just when the day was so hot, the sea so distant that I nearly gave up, we came upon a cherry tree, the fruit heavy on low branches. We picked them by the handful, ate them down, juice running down our faces, passed the fruits around, came back for more, swigged the last water from our battered plastic bottles. One more hill, then we started our final descent. How long it took for those with bruised black toes blisters, twisted ankles, 
to finish the trek. But I can tell you this. The waters of the Tyrrhenian Sea were the finest I have ever stepped into. I rolled my pants up, tread carefully around the slick rocks, pushed my feet into wet sand. Martina stuck bottles of Prosecco into the water to keep them cool till all of us gathered on the sand. I cupped my hands one at a time and bathed my arms with the blue water, the same sea the Phoenicians, the Normans, the Carthaginians had sailed. The wine fizzed in my mouth. I held out my glass for seconds. Anything after this, a superb dinner, posh hotel, slower pace would pale. More, per favore, I said to Martina, and she refilled refilled my glass to the very brim. That night, we would feast on the frutti de mara at an osteria, delight in the pasta, sea bream. Contorni, but for now we toasted one another to friendship, to Chefalu, and to the perfect eternal blue Tyrrhenian Sea. That's all I got. The end. All right. As I've asked the others, Lynn, what does her story mean to you? Well, I think. I mean, I think poetry is is so much uh, a um, an exercise in trying to look at the world and convey your sense of what being in the world looks like. Um, for me, um, as a woman poet, I think we can go back, you know, many hundreds of years and and scrounge up some some good woman poets, but not very many. And I think even in terms of 20th century poems, if you look at the early 20th century, it is really, really hard to to find models. So a lot of the time, um, being a woman telling her story through poetry is an exercise in trying to fine-tune your voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it's always necessarily, you know, uh, confessional poetry either. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think it's trying to find a form that fits, but not, you know, it, you know, it's kind of like you you look at a poet you really love. I love Walt Whitman, and go, yeah, that's great for Walt Whitman. How can I do what he does, but do it through <laughs> the lens of being female? Mm-hmm. And 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 so, ideally, her story is as powerful for people who are gender fluid or or for males to appreciate as it is for women to appreciate. I mean, I don't write for women necessarily, but but for everybody, but I want to convey um womanness. And I think, you know, some of some of my earlier poems are about, you know, having my children and and there's a there's a lot about being a mother in in those, um, which is 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 very important to me. Um, I was struck by some things that Jackie said that really resonated with me about um, women in in her family doing what they had to do because in in my family as well that's pretty much the case. Um, my mother always worked because she had to um, because of some. Uh, medical issues my father had and he couldn't work for a long time my aunt worked um i 
my grandmother worked. She was a, basically a, uh, a cleaning lady, a charwoman, I guess you would say. So to, to me, this whole notion of work and life, work and personal life is part of her story, and I try to convey mm-hmm. that as well. I don't know that these poems necessarily show that because I was so focused on, you know, this notion of self-quarantine and isolation and trying to fill time with, with constructive behavior but still saying, like the, the part in the poem where, you know, my friends were saying what they missed, right? Yes. Um, I you know, I thought that was really interesting. I, this is a group of women who get together in Zoom once a week. We all went to high school together, and we live all over the country, and every week we have a new prompt, and and the prompt early on was, what do you miss? And I was really surprised at some of the things people missed because some of them were obvious. Mm-hmm. But it was very much a um, women's um, perception of what they missed. Mm-hmm. Some are divorced, mm-hmm. some are married, some never married, mm-hmm. some have children, some didn't. And all of those. So I think her story is kind of um, the alternate view. It's like, Howard Zinn's mm-hmm. um, People's History of the United States yes. is an alternate view of what we were taught, and mm-hmm. and and I think her story is another view. Whether yep. you know, it's another view of of what's important. I think right now in this pandemic, I know younger women who were have little children at home, two, three, four years mm-hmm. old, five, and they're trying to work at home remotely, right? Mm-hmm. Or they're going yep. into work. And it, and what do you do with the child, right? I got to go work because yeah. I'm essential. Mm-hmm. So I think all of these things are part. They're very special to women, and I think mm-hmm. it's important for poets and and other kinds of writers to to tell those stories. Right. Very nice. You know, it's nice. a, as I, you know, it's a it's an Alice Walker kind of thing. You know. Yes. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Oh. Com- comments from your colleagues. In terms of which oh, this is Marianne. I want to uh, say something before my phone dies, and I have to switch phones. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love listening to your poems, Lynn. You know, especially the last poem. I felt I was right there with you on the walk. Oh, I, I'll send you the whole poem. It's it's really oh, long. Wow. As we as we say in Boston, it's wicked long, um, and I'm still trying to. <laughs> To boil it down a little, but um, yeah, it was quite a it was quite a trick. Oh, that yeah, that would be great. Yeah, actually, when I lived in Boston, I used to go on these long walks. I didn't dip my uh, feet in the ocean, but yeah, you know, it, I I had the feeling that I had been walking for a long time, and I I could feel you know I could feel my legs cramp up and, and all that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Different from the other poems. <laughs> Other comments. We got one more question for Lynn. Sophia, I really enjoyed the quarantine because they're so. This mm-hmm. is the everyday stuff, you know, that one one deals with, and sandwiches. I I like the sandwich ones too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of like now. What do we do? You know, we're we. My, yeah, my, exactly. My husband is mm-hmm. is very deeply involved in in a uh, an initiative where he goes in to Boston and they've got this whole thing down to a science they cook the chicken they've got the whole th- you know and they they have this all these people come in and you know they feed all these people um who are unhoused and now what do you do right you can't do it that way now so it's, and that's why like i it's 
sort of a, a reduction in, in it. It's a, a, a what do I want to say? It's a faint shadow of what they normally do. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, let yeah. me ask this question. Let me ask this question. It's a very general question, and I've asked it of the others. What does being a poet mean to you? Oh man. Well, <laughs> I was just reading something that Billy Collins. Billy Collins was. Talk, I thought it was like a YouTube or something because he's doing some course or something. And he said, being a poet, um, it, you're often just like looking at the page and you're thinking and you're thinking. And he said, being a poet involves a lot of staring at the page. <laughs> and and so for me, that's a struggle because I'm, I'm kind of a multitasker. And I, for me, be, being a poet means taking time out to think about things and then mm-hmm. write about them a little bit and then maybe walk away and then come back and work on it some more and then mm-hmm. do that over and over and over again. So to me, being a poet means having an insight, trying to capture that in words, and then being willing to go back like 10, 12 18, 22 <laughs> times to, to, to rework it because yeah. because it because it it isn't it usually isn't that great on the first run through and then to try right. to shape it and polish it as well but sometimes it's and sometimes it just doesn't work I just went I've just gone through a lot of old poems to see if I can put together some kind of collection and if there's any mm-hmm. kind of common theme and I had a, I had a stack basically called um, not very good poems. Like, don't ever even try to put these in anything. And it was really daunting because it's like it was like there were so many of them, and they were and they weren't salvageable in any way. They're not poems you kind of go, "Hey, this is pretty good. I need to go back and work on this some more." So I think being a poet is, is you know, it's like the old thing. It's like ten percent inspiration, ninety percent perspiration. Yeah. So I think it's 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 not it's 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 almost never done. And I think that's the thing I like about it, too, because there's always another day. It's kind of like being in quarantine. You know, if you don't get all your tests done one day, there's always another day that you can make those masks, yes. make the sourdough bread, or write the letter. And, mm-hmm. and so so with poetry, same thing. So I think it's, and for me, it's, it's I've written since I was a young teenager, or maybe even younger than that, but I've only seriously, seriously, seriously been doing it for about eight years or nine years. Oh, wow, and, man. Wow. Yeah. And, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I have stuff from 20 years ago, but, you know, in terms of really saying, oh, I, I'm a poet, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to I write some poetry occasionally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, right. so um, it, it, and I think, you know, and I, and I think, well, Jackie, you can probably reflect on this, too. Say some, mm-hmm. something about this. It's like you've always been writing or, or writing songs mm-hmm. or whatever you. And, but all of a sudden, something happens, and you kind of, and this is how I felt. And I watch your work mm-hmm. just be so prolific mm-hmm. in such a short time, and I go, it's kind of like, well, I guess I'm not going to live forever, so I better get going on this. Yeah, yeah. The floodgates open, you know. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes so it, there's you, you just need something to unlock it. And I got to yeah. add, Lynn, your pandemic poems are wonderful. I, I okay. love it. I hear something different in your voice in those poems. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, all right. I'd like to say thank you to all of you. What I'd like to do is to share my voice 
in terms yes. of the proceedings. Yes, yes. I I question whether I should because I think by my sharing that might detract from the program. Yeah. Yeah, we want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> and of course I I also want I someday I want to hear you hear Throw, throw me around the, the corner other. another biscuit because that's my. I that's love that poem. <laughs> I love right. that poem. <laughs> well, please indulge me as I attempt yes. to share a woman's story. Uh, mm-hmm. The first poem was commissioned by the by Oregon State University, and it's entitled "She Reached Out and Touched History." Mm-hmm. This poem. Title She Reached Out and Touched History is dedicated mm-hmm. to the life and legacy of Carrie Hossell Ward, the first African American to graduate from Oregon State University in 1913. She reached out and touched history. Although many could not imagine that it was her plan, given that she was young, life still developing, gelling as a creation still being molded and forged in hues of ebony, bronze, and gold. She reached out and touched history, although the fathers of the day refused to believe that she could do so. Given that she was a woman, the right to vote for the mothers of all fathers still percolating, the casings of a woman's world still relegated to the margins of society, despite pleas of social reform from suffragettes and cries of ain't I a woman too, yelled loudly by noble voices who told in far distant cotton fields and other disdained places of work. She reached out and touched history, although the academicians of the day could not fathom that it was her plan. She was gifted and had the desire and dedication to educate and uplift those who too sought knowledge, freedom, and power. She reached out and touched history, Although legions could not foresee it could be her plan, given that she was black, colored black when black was not yet a color, human in one world and not the other, living in a space, time, and place when it was not yet conducive to be young, gifted, black, and to be a woman. Nevertheless, she reached out and touched history, and history observed and responded in kind, and reached out and met her touch. Applauding she was young, full of hope and promise, reveling she was a woman, one half of a whole, yet whole perfect and complete. Relishing she was gifted, leaving the hallowed halls of academe, a college graduate, learning as she set forth to conquer new horizons and find ways of surviving and thriving in a world where she had already achieved despite the odds of achieving. Celebrating proudly because she was black, convinced of her human right to exist, to learn, to be free, to be carried. She reached out and touched history, and destiny responded in kind, reached out and met her touch. Destiny smiled and married their ebony night-hewn embrace, creating a legacy of opportunities for all of us to achieve goals, reach dreams, and ascend undaunted by the limits of our imagination. All right. That was She Reached Out and Touched History. I like and, and I like the little way you little include that little Nina Sano Yes, the Moan line there I, to be young, gifted, and black. One of my favorites. That's lovely. That's great. So this was was it, was this was yeah. for a special occasion or it was yes. like a. Uh, uh, what happened is that a new residence hall on campus was being built, 
and they named it Carrie Hussell oh, Residence Hall. Nice. So they, asked, they asked me to to write a piece of poetry to to dedicate in her honor for the residence hall. Mm-hmm. That's great. The Wonderful. next piece. The next piece I'd like to, to dedicate to all of you as a way of saying thank you for, for, for being here with me. Um, it makes me so happy and proud to know such, such incredible women, to know such incredible poets. So I dedicate this piece that I wrote some years ago as a tribute to my mother, but I think the message is universal and the piece is titled Shelling Dean. When I arrived, my mom asked me to shell some beans for her. But I thought to myself, Mom, I had finished school and everything, thought I was all of that, that I don't shell beans anymore. <laughs> but I also thought to myself all the times that she had shelled beans for me without question, why couldn't I do the same thing for her? So I wrote the following poem as a tribute to my mother, but I think the message is universal and it's entitled Shelling Beans. Y'all ready? In a small southern town, not too far from the one that you no longer claim. I recently visited my mama. I needed to get away from the maddening crowd, the boastful talking aloud, that I am no longer what I once was. I left that back there just because. I needed to see my mama's face. Behold, the originator of a race. You see, in the grand scheme of life, mine was clearly without strife. Had overcome that small town mentality, embraced big city formality of the giant of men, degreed and all too big to fall. I want to let my mama know, have become all that and more. In the kitchen there she sat, big, beautiful, black and fat, smiling from ear to ear. Her baby was on too long that he'd been gone. God's done come, old cousin Essie snickered. You see, some of her boys have been jailed for jealousy all the time, Flippy. Mama. And a loud voice I proclaim for you, the world I've tamed. I'm bigger than big, bolder than bold. When I walk, my way is paved with silver and gold. So ask me, Mama, about the places I've been and the people I've seen. You need some money. Here's yours. My pockets are filled with green. Come, son, she said. And a voice both nice and sweet. Come sit here at the table and help your mama while she's still able. Child, what a day I've seen. Grab that sack and help shell these beans. (laughs) Mama, I said, with an incredulous voice, I came back here by choice. I've been out walking with kings and queens. I don't remember anything about shelling beans. She's shelling beans. As for the common man, I gave that up when I left the land. So ask me, Mama, about my plate of riches. You need a new dress. I'll buy you one laid with gold stitches. She looked at me in her wise old way. Although I did not know exactly what she would say, I knew that it would contain the wisdom of the ages. You see, she had lived a good life. Therefore, her life book was full of pages. She said, son, don't you ever forget, no matter how big you get, that life's about more than being able to walk with kings and queens. Life's about remembering how to do the common and simple things like shelling beans. You see, shelling beans is a time on a task. And if you don't remember how, then I should have never asked. For me that you've forgotten that true wealth comes from the fruit of the earth, from any place else. What is this real world? Mm-hmm. So my son, tell me your story. 
Is it only of the riches and the glory, or is it also about remembering how to become as simple things like shelling beans in addition to all that you've seen? Mama said, in a sheepish voice, that trembled, but not by choice. I do remember, I do remember, so I grabbed that sack and helped shell those beans, and we shelled for went on like hours, it seemed. Yet on that day, I didn't mind shelling beans, because I shelled them at the feet of a queen. Thank you very much. All right. All right. That was shelling beans. Oh, thank Lovely. you. That Love the energy me. of that. It, yes. <laughs> it reminds me of the of um, Seamus Heaney's poem about peeling the potatoes with his mother. Oh, really? Oh, Never really? closer, mm. yeah. It, it's mm-hmm. just that intimacy between mother and son over this mm-hmm. simple domestic task mm-hmm. that is so powerful. It, it's, yes. it's a wonderful poem. Yes, that's exactly. And you do read it beautifully when when you've got a live audience there, sir. (laughs) Yes. Oh wow! Like I I was in church. I heard people going, "Uh huh." Yes. Uh huh. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, I am ready to try it myself. (laughs) (laughs) I am so happy you all made my night. Uh, We've been working on this program for a while. Yeah. Everybody to come back next year for another Her yep. Story program. And I want Damn to say to the audience, tune in next week and one exciting bit of news. In about six weeks, I'll celebrate my 100th episode of Quintessential wow. Listening to Oh, congratulations. Radio. Congratulations. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah. So you'll hear more information about that to come. So to everyone, okay, good night. And take care okay. of people. Be safe out there. All right. Michael, yeah. thank you for the opportunity. Good night. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. you. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Michael. Yes, oh, yes. indeed. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. You have just listened to the Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio Podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to catch our next episode.